Just the existence of the ark itself argues for a large flood, a universal flood. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain, what did God tell Lot to do? Build a bomb shelter to endure the cataclysm? Nope. What did he tell Lot to do? Get out of town. Yeah, he told him to leave. So if the flood were local, God could have told Noah and his family, you know, I'll give you... 100 days and get as far away as you can. So just the existence of the ark argues for something that's worldwide or universal. And it was huge. It was, uh, we had the specific dimensions and some descriptions. It had three levels. That tells us right in Genesis 6 through 6 and 7, or chapter 6, I believe. Gives us the length, which would have been about 450. 450 feet, gives it in uh, cubits, gives us the height, about 45 feet height, and it also gives us a 75-foot width. And it was probably more of a barge, it was probably more like a barge, because it didn't have to sail, it didn't have to be, it didn't have to navigate, it just had to survive, because God was going to move it to wherever he wanted it. And there's been a lot of studies, engineering studies, in terms of what we have in the Genesis account, and all engineers say that this would have been an extremely stable, almost impossible to capsize, just because of the dimensions. So it would withstand all of the storms, the tsunamis of the Genesis flood. Yeah, obviously it would have have means of carrying on life on the boat. Yeah. Now, a lot of, uh, a lot of the critics say that even though the, the boat is huge, that it could not contain all of the air-breathing animals. But what they're looking at is, I don't remember what the number is, uh, 40,000 species, but they're looking at species. And remember, it wasn't species that were on the ark. It was only kinds. So it didn't have to take in, for example, if you look at the horse kind, it didn't have to take in zebras, donkeys, you know, just the horse kind, two of them. Same with the dog kind. It didn't have to have all of the varieties and also all the cat kind. Wood Merapi, there's a good book out. It's on your list, Wood Merapi. has done a lot of these studies to basically give a rationale where the ark would be adequate to house all of the animals with plenty of room, including all the food. And another possibility is for the length of the flood, a lot of the animals could have hibernated, possibly hibernated. And that would include dinosaurs. And one of the things I think he suggested, or at least one of the creationists suggests that in terms of the dinosaurs, most lizards mature very early, very young, and they can reproduce very young. So dinosaurs wouldn't have to be full-blown 30-foot Tyrannosaurus rexes, that sort of thing, whatever the kind was of dinosaurs. So they could have been smaller. And the estimates that would have been made in terms of the size of the animal is about the size of a lamb, the average size. So, uh, if you want to compare floor space, there's some data there. 2.2 acres of floor space. If you like sports, about 20 basketball courts. 
that's for me, basically. You should have put football fields on there, too. But Or what 522 railroad cars can carry. So lots of cargo space. And and by the way, that, again, to build a structure of that size, primitive man, you know, it goes against the idea of primitive man. Noah would have had high intelligence, high technology to be able to build such a such a structure. In fact, nothing comparable had been built in world history up until like the 1800s, a, a boat of that size, of that dimension. So, number six, if you gather, again, all the little bits and pieces of data in the chapters, we see huge geological upheaval on a massive scale, never seen, we've never seen anything like it. Fountains of the Deep, I'm going to explain this twice, let me take a look at it here real quick. Most scholars, biblical scholars, and I'm talking about conservatives, they generally thought of these as subterranean waters that burst before the flood, so they had waters coming up like geysers that provided a lot of water for the Genesis flood. But I think there's a better explanation now that we know, and we've made some observations below oceans, The fountains of the deep, rather than being water fountains, are more than likely something else. And let me kind of show you what the theory is. If you take all of the water out of the Atlantic Ocean, here's North America, no Atlantic Ocean, all the water is out. This is what it looks like down below. After all the water is gone, here's North Africa, here's Spain, Europe would be off the the slide here. From uh, pole to pole, there is what is called, right down the middle, a mid-Atlantic ridge. It's like a mountain range that runs from the North Pole to the South Pole. And it looks a little bit like a zipper. And all of this material is volcanic. It's all volcanic rock. And creationist, one theory of creationist, is when the fountains of the deep burst, and the deep is the, is the water, is the oceans, fountains of the deep. What creationists believe is the fountains of the deep erupted in terms of lava and what happens to hot magma or lava that is erupting under an ocean. What are you going to get? Lots of steam, exactly. So the theory is, is this magma comes up, this is the fountain of the deep, breaks the ocean floor and you have hot lava in contact with ocean water. And what that's going to produce, you have the magma coming to the surface. You're also going to be displacing sea floors, and you're going to have magma going in different directions. You're going to have a tremendous amount of steam produced. And this intense steam is going to produce thick clouds. It's going to produce 40 days of intense global rain. This is probably the best Scientific explanation of uh, Genesis 7, 11, and 12. Well, if you have a big pool and you pour water on it, the hole fills up first to the temple. So if you just add the water in the ocean, uh, Well, this is under the oceans. In other words, this is that volcanic, this is the mid-Atlantic range. And by the way, there's a Pacific ring as well that is similar. It's a volcanic ring. During this event, what you'd have is displacement of the sea bottoms, and you'd also have displacements of continents. 
and what geologists call subduction of entire land masses on a large scale. So you have whatever existed before displaced by this magma that is coming from the below the surface of the earth, below the crust, producing the steam and also displacing uh, tectonic plates such that the entire earth is totally reshaped as a result of the Genesis flood. That's why, Loretta, you wouldn't find Garden of Eden or those same rivers that are described before the flood. And by the way, climatologists will tell you that the atmosphere is incapable of holding 40 days of rain, holding water of of a 40-day duration. So what you have is you have a continual generating of steam to produce a 40-day storm or a 40-day event. That's another theory, a canopy. Uh, there's a canopy theory. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. I'll touch on it. But if you can kind of get this idea in your mind, this is probably the best explanation that I've seen, and it's probably the more popular one. It was becoming more popular amongst most conservative creationists. So in this flood, again, if you study the details, you have the fountains of the deep. These, this would be massive. So you'd have something similar in the Pacific as what I just described in terms of the Atlantic. So you have the fountains of the deep. You have a 40-day rain event, continuous day and night, it says. You have a 150-day storm. And this is in addition to the 40 days. So you have the earth inundated for 150 days. And Mackenzie read uh, chapter 8, verse 3. It talks about 150 days of the waters receding. That's a different 150 days in terms of the 150-day storm. And if you add them all up, you end up with a 377-day ride in the ark. Now, it's actually 370 days of flood, but Noah and his family entered the ark seven days before. So they were in the ark 377 days. And we have specific dating when they left the flood, and it's over a year. In fact, it corresponds to the numbers here. Here's your flood chronology with 177 days. They enter the ark over here seven days before the flood begins, so you add seven days here. Then you have the flood beginning. That's that first arrow on the bottom. And you have 40 days of rain. That's the end of the 40 days. There's 40 days in there. And then you have a 150-day. That's the end of the 150-day. Then we have a record of all of the tops of the mountains covered. That's chapter 7, 719. Yeah, all the mountaintops are covered. Sending out of the ravens, we have a time frame noted for them. And then the cover is taken off, or opened at least. And then they disembark. And in there we have also 150 days of receding of the flood. And they disembark over here 377 days later. So there's your flood chronology. And all of this is in the text. It gives us the number of days, and you just add them on, and you come up with that. And you compare it with uh, the dating. In fact, what is the dating when they leave? Where is that verse 813? The 601st year. The other one was 600 year. 601st year. First month. 
and on the first day, first of the month. Now, keep in mind, this is a 360-day year. It seems for some reason all of the days in Genesis are 360, early days, and a lot of prophetic days are 360 as well, when you go to the book of Revelation. I don't know whether that has something to do with the, the flood in terms of the axis of the earth might have been tipped such that we have 365.25 or something. Okay, so we have God's determination. We have universal corruption. We have universal destruction. We have universal language. All of this indicates a universal flood, just the existence of the ark itself, all of the geological upheaval, some of which we described. And lastly, why make a covenant? God even enters into a covenant. And we'll talk some more about this covenant. It's very significant. God not only promises, but God covenants. And I'll tell you what a covenant is when we look at chapter 9. So we have a promise, and in that promise, he promises not to bring another flood. So if there's another flood, then God broke his covenant. Okay. There's a little, little cartoon there. That happened in Peru, where maybe people didn't know that it was 27 years or So they got it wrong. Yeah. So the details, the exegetical details are important. So we have universal flood. We have a picture of salvation. We have a picture of salvation, just as we had a picture of salvation in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, we saw elements of salvation. Similarly, we have a picture in the Genesis flood. And again, we have God's gracious warning. In fact, Noah took, I can't remember, what is it, 120 years or so to build the ark, or at least that verse seems to indicate that that's what took. And the New Testament tells us that Noah was a preacher of what? Righteousness. Remember that? So Noah not only built an ark, which was a testimony itself, and would have drawn a lot of questions, you know, what are you doing? You know, this we've never had floods here. So that was a testimony in itself. He would be able to tell them God is bringing a flood. He's judging mankind. So God graciously warns, as always. Secondly, he discriminates very perfectly in that he preserves in his judgment that that he wants to preserve, and he destroys or judges that that he wants to destroy. And we see that in terms of the Genesis flood. Thirdly, there's always grace involved, and I told you I was going to tell you about Noah. Look what it says when it describes Noah in chapter 6. Who wants to read verse 8? Holland, do you want to read that one? I'm not sure where we are in the sequence. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, the word that's translated favor there is one of the Hebrew words for grace. And what that implies, it's not that Noah was so good that God said, oh, I like him, I'm going to preserve him. It has the idea, is Noah found grace? In other words, God granted grace to Noah. 
So there's always grace involved. And certainly here with the, with Noah at least. And the implication is his family followed him rather than followed the world. So fourthly, there's only one way. There's always only one way. It's only through sacrifice. It's only, ultimately, and only in terms of the Genesis flood, only on the ark. Only those that were on the ark were saved. So number one, God's gracious warning. Number two, God exercises perfect discrimination. And in the final judgment, God is going to distinguish the unbeliever from the believer. There's not going to be any that can pull the wool over God's eyes. It'll always be by grace, even at the end, and it'll always be on the basis of one way, which implies that Jesus is the way. And fifthly, it involves all of creation, not just humans. It involves animals as well. And the ultimate salvation will also include all of the creation. So that's number five. And number six, it's appropriated by faith. Now, it's not so clear in uh, Noah, but it had to have taken faith to build such a structure and take the ridicule from the culture. And if that's not convincing enough, the book of Hebrews basically tells us that uh, Noah was a man of faith. One of the heroes of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, is Noah. So it's always appropriated by faith. So we have a picture of salvation in the Genesis flood. So that pretty much gives us what we want to look at today. That's the biblical evidence of a universal flood. And what we will look at uh, next week is when we get to the apologetic portion, we'll look at the scientific evidence. But I want to look at something else before we get to the scientific evidence, which we'll do at the beginning of next week. We want to look at this covenant. Very important. We'll look at chapter 9. Ray, how come the animals also have to be involved in the animals? Yes, because they're going to be animals. Yep. Everything and everything. That's the way it is. It's part of what God designed. They're created for us. We are looking at our third major event, Genesis Flood. Last week, we spent a good portion of our time on Genesis chapters, actually beginning from chapter 4 to basically chapter 8. And today, we want to look at chapter 9 and some of the issues related to chapter 9 and some of the implications related to chapter 9. And in that, I divide the book of Genesis, as I said, into two parts, primeval history. These are the first 11 chapters, essentially. Chapter 12, I call patriarchal history. We'll get into that when we talk about Abraham. But all these early events fall within what we would call primeval history. We've considered the history of creation, chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. We looked at the early history of mankind. The other part of chapter 2 through the end of chapter 3. And last time we are look, we're looking at the early history of civilization. And actually early civilization comes to a rapid end. Early history of civilization chapters 4 through 9. And that's the portion where we have primarily the Genesis flood. Everything else just kind of leads up to it and gives us the background to it. So we summarized chapters 4 through 6, verse 8, the decline of civilization, concentrating on Cain and the ungodly line, and then 
corruption of the godly line such that all of humanity is corrupted. And we looked at what I've described here as the destruction of civilization, this early civilization. That's chapter 6, 9 through the end of chapter 8. Or another way of describing that, that's basically the Genesis flood. So that's what we looked at last time. And now, directions for Noah, that's all chapter 9. And what we will focus in on, spend most of our time on in that portion will be the Noahic covenant, which is extremely important for a lot of reasons. So that's where we'll get. So let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you haven't turned in your Bibles there, let's look at a couple of verses from that. Would somebody begin by reading and starting, start with you, Randy. Okay, Randy's reading 9-1. And God bless Noah and his sons. What do you see there that's familiar? We have the creation mandate reiterated, and obviously, because this is after the Genesis flood, all of mankind is basically destroyed. So Noah needs a reminder of what God set up initially, and this also emphasizes how this creation mandate is very, very important. So at least the beginning of it, and you can assume that Noah was aware of the complete mandate that we have in uh, Genesis chapter 1. So we have a reiteration of it, and particularly the family aspect, so a reinstitution of the family. Let's read 6 and 7. Mark, you want to do that one? That portion? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Okay. We have what most scholars take as the first kind of injunction or command relating to human government. So, the institution of government has its beginnings, it has roots even before that, but it has its beginning in Genesis chapter 9. This is the first overt responsibility or purpose, you might say, for human government. So, let's take a look at that right off the bat. We're not gonna, I'm not gonna exegete that in any more detail other than taking a look at it from the perspective of an implication. We've already seen the corrupting effects of sin. We've seen the universal flood. And I tried to show you that what Moses wrote, he intended to communicate a flood of the scope that can only be described as worldwide. And we call that universal. So the biblical evidence for the Genesis flood is this was a worldwide event. You have to really stretch the language to get anything else. And I gave you several kind of bullet points as to why you can come to that conclusion from all of the details, kind of pulling all the details together. Thirdly, last time we saw that the Genesis flood is another picture of salvation. We we had one picture in Genesis chapter 3, and we have another picture of salvation in the account of the Genesis flood. These are implications on your outline sheet. The fourth implication that we want to focus in on today, another implication or another foundation, is the foundation for human government. 
I'm going to give you a foundation for human government somewhat briefly, at least the beginning of it, because we'll see this kind of expanded, and we'll have more detail of it in later passages, the next major event. So I'm going to use my little foundation format slide here, and this one will be human government particularly. Where would you say, from what we've been discussing in terms of foundations of other things, obviously where does it have to begin? Begins with God in some way or another. Uh, more specifically, where might you think human government has its elitist roots before Genesis even, in Genesis 9 even? Uh, I would have to say that, you know, government is only an establishment if there's one, if there's more than two people. So if there's two people, there's some kind of government. So I would say just the family, Adam and Eve. Okay. And I would actually... I would say it has its roots in the creation mandate, as, as even Mark alluded to. It, and maybe not so much within the family, but we would certainly see it in terms of rulership. This is man's responsibility. And this is organized man, in other words, more than just even a family, where you need the parameters of government, where rulership will be expressed through government. So you find the roots of it, I think, in the creation mandate. So again, Genesis 1, a lot of things you can see the at least roots of in Genesis 1. Our culture finds government its source, obviously, everything in man, because our culture leaves God out. The biblical always begins with God. Secondly, number two, we have the, the hindrances of dominion which means we have a hindrance to whatever rulership, whatever authority God grants in terms of delegated sovereignty, that is always hindered by the Genesis 3 fall. So human government is never ideal, so it's not ideal. No matter how man may conceive of his schemes, it's, it's always less than ideal. And we could have even put this as number one, but it's established by God, and this is where the Genesis 9 passage comes in. Established by God. It's not something cultural. It's not something, again, from man or society, but established by God. And most theologians see that origin here in Genesis chapter 9. And we could say from Genesis 9... Because of the stipulation, the main function of government is for the restraint of evil. To restrain evil. And evil can take different forms. Human government, I think it has at least a twofold restraint. One, restraint from within in relationship to members of that government or citizens of that entity. And the design is to provide a means for punishment, and that's what we have here. And in this case, we have capital punishment, the instituting of capital punishment, which is never rescinded, by the way. This is a little bit of a debate in theological circles today, but the Bible never rescinds it. And those that argue for it being barbaric and uncivilized and not appropriate for 21st century and not even New Testament... That's not the case at all. It certainly is in the, the law, but it precedes the law. So it's not tied to the law. It comes from Genesis 9. 
predates the law, because it comes out of Genesis 9, and it also it is somewhat alluded to or understood even in the New Testament. If you read Romans 13, Paul refers to government having the authority of the sword, and the authority of the sword is capital punishment. So it's a New Testament teaching teaching as well. They had the authority to execute as well. Yes, angels. So the main function, twofold, the first function is to restrain evil from within, but uh, somewhat implied from other passages is restraint from external enemies as well. Those are the two major functions of government. And basically the Bible doesn't really give us any other functions or maybe perhaps some secondary, but certainly our government that got, has gone way over in the social good area, I think it's gone beyond, well beyond what the biblical purpose of government is all about. And there's a lot of arguments make against a socialistic type of government. We won't develop those here. But these are your first four foundation stones for government. So it's not for social good. It's not the purpose of government. It's primarily to restrain evil. Because of the depravity of man, and because of probably the history of Genesis 3 through 6 that we have a summary of. So, we have these divine institutions that we've already looked at. From the human perspective, the humanistic, from our culture, these are just what they would describe as social conventions. In other words, marriage is simply a social convention. And if it's just a social convention and it has its roots only in society or ultimately mankind, then they're arbitrary. And if they are arbitrary, then at any point you can change them. Two men can marry. Two women can marry. And eventually you can marry your dog if you want to. And eventually you'll be able to marry three or four wives if you want to. That's where it'll end up. Yeah, you can marry your lamb as well. So if they're simply social conventions, then they are arbitrary and they are changing and that opens the door for whatever. But divine institutions, which we believe in, and we believe that that's what the Bible teaches, that these are divine institutions, these are fixed by God, instituted by Him, and to violate them or to go against them brings severe consequences to those that participate and even entire cultures that permit it. So... We will suffer ill effects as a result of our culture adopting what divine institutions are and turning them into social conventions. So they're built by God, and there are consequences to going against them. And these divine institutions we've already seen, we saw marriage from Genesis 1, and we also saw a pattern of heterosexuality in marriage, no homosexuality. We saw families, and the main function of families is to produce offspring or fruitfulness. New generations that can fulfill the other aspects of the creation mandate. And now we have a at least a third. There are some scholars that add another one besides these three. 
But these are clear-cut. Marriage, family, government, and a stipulation of human government, capital punishment, indicating that the main function is the restraint of sin. So those are your divine institutions. Number five in our foundation for government, the next thing that we'll look at in the next major event is from government we will also have national entities. And in that Genesis 11 passage, we're going to see that God counters man's desire for a one-world government. We have the beginnings of kind of a tendency in human government is to acquire ultimate power. It's one of the tendencies of all government is to acquire more, more power, more and more power. God seems to have desired or willed national entities, at least by way of implication, and the scattering of peoples creates these national entities that lead to other things, and there'll be other things that we'll add to this as we get beyond the Genesis 11 passage. But at least you have the first five foundation stones for human government. Make sense? And six will come later. So we have some directions for Noah, chapter 9, 1 through 7, dealing with human government particularly. We have the dedication of Noah. He offers a sacrifice after the Genesis flood. And from that, God responds to that and enters into a covenant with Noah. And I want to spend a good portion of our time looking at the next major implication, dealing with a Noahic covenant. This has far-reaching implications as well. And in that, we'll add to some of the other foundations of some of the other things that we've talked about. So let me kind of give you some uh, background on what covenants are and why they are significant. For unfortunate reasons, I guess, the church today doesn't teach much about the Old Testament covenants. So this may be new to you. Those of you that have been in the class that I teach elsewhere, I think you're familiar with this, so this will be a little bit of a review. But covenants in general are extremely important, and I hope you see that from this little bit of an introduction here. First of all, God does not have to enter into covenants. So the question we can ask is, why does God enter into covenants? In fact, this is a very unique phenomenon. I've got a quote from one of the most well-known archaeologists of our day, and he comments on this whole idea of covenants and God himself. This is totally foreign to all world religions. It's only the Israelites whose God enters into covenant with them. Well, why does God do it? Let me give, I'll give you some reasons in a moment, but let me build on that. He did not need to even reveal his will in terms of anything in the future. There's no need for him to do that. He's not obligated by man. So anything that God reveals is purely by his grace. Purely by grace. Secondly, all that we need is knowing his character, and he's revealed even enough of his character into chapter 9, that all we need is just to trust whatever he says. His character is faithful. We can trust anything that God says. 
Thirdly, what he has revealed in his word is sufficient because of God's faithfulness, because of who he is, whatever he says is truth. So with these three, there's no need for God to enter into a covenant, so there's no need for him to enter or make covenants. So the question comes up, why did he do it? And I think we have some things that we can say to that. And as we trace these covenants, this is the first major covenant of Scripture that is explicitly stated. Some theologians see other covenants implied. That's debatable. But the Noahic covenant is the first one that is explicit, stated, and we have the all of the elements of a covenant presented. So he does not need to make covenants, but he does. So they do have a unique significance in terms of history, in terms of world history. This whole area of covenants, you'll not hear a thing about it if you take a world history class either in high school or college or graduate school or wherever. But covenants, I believe, beginning with the Noahic covenant, are actually God's declaration of what he's going to do in time because of the nature of covenants. Here's that quote I told you about. William F. Albright says, Only the Hebrews, so far as we know, in other words, in all of the study of archaeology, as far as we know, only the Hebrews, so far as we know, made covenants with their gods or capitalized God. Now, that's a significant statement. In other words, all the pagan gods, all the Egyptian gods, all the Assyrian gods, all the Roman, Greek, Babylonian gods, no covenants. Only Israel and God. Now, Albright has it a little bit backwards, but his observation is very perceptive and very accurate. In other words, there's only covenants between the God of the Bible and the nation of Israel. He's pretty secular. Yeah, that's why he's got it a little bit backwards. Because it, the Hebrews are not the ones that make the covenant with their God. It's the, like Marcy says the other way around. It's God who always initiates it. You see that here in uh, Genesis chapter 9. In fact, let's read the passage next. Let's read chapter 9, 8 through 11. Holland, is it your turn? Then God says to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Okay, there's the mention of the covenant. Now, let me interrupt your reading there, Holland, because there was already a mention before that God was going to enter into covenant. I don't know if you saw that in chapter chapter 6. You want to backtrack there, Holland, and just skip back and look. Look at verse 18 in 6, where God promises it. Read that one, and then go back, and then go into chapter 9 again. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. This is announced before the flood. Now, over a year later, after the flood, here's the covenant that God promised. Keep reading. And of every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth for you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Okay, I want you to notice a few things there. The nature of covenants are that there are parties to them. There, in fact, think of covenants as contracts. You can even translate the word covenant, contract. The Noahic contract, if you 
so desired. Some theologians even refer to them as that. So think of contracts. Think of a contract that you have maybe with a car dealer when you bought your car. Some of you that are younger. Those of you that are older that have mortgages, think of your mortgage. You have a contract with a bank. What do you have? First of all, what's the beginning of this contract? It's between parties. And it's only the ones that sign at the bottom that this contract pertains to. In other words, you as an individual, you and your wife or whatever, purchasing this house, and the other party is the bank. So you have parties of the contract. Every contract has stipulations. In other words, these stipulations are what you are to do in relationship to this contract. The bank says, I'm going to lend you $150,000 so that you can purchase this house. It will be money designated only for the purchase of this house. In fact, we will even pay that. That's what the bank will do. The bank will do some other things, charge fees. There will be other stipulations, but there will be stipulations the bank has to maintain, and there will be certainly stipulations that you'll have to maintain. And usually every month on before the eighth of the month or whatever, you pay a certain amount and the bank takes a record of it and keeps some of it for interest. So those are the main stipulations. At a certain rate, whatever you agree upon that you signed at the bottom for, stipulations. All right? Who are the parties in Genesis chapter 9 to this contract? Every living creature. Glad you observed that. But first of all, who's the main party? God. God is the main party. Who's the secondary main party? Uh, main party? Every living creature. Well, before that, Noah. Noah and his family. But it also includes creatures and descendants and creatures. So I'm, good, I'm glad you observed that. And the earth. What does this immediately tell you about some of the aspects of this covenant that are most important. Well, it's universal, but it's going to deal with the creation as well as mankind. It's going to deal with the creation as well as mankind. All right? You're not saying that one of the, you're not saying that parties of the contract include all the collision here. Is that the way it reads? Yes, I am saying that. There's a semicolon there, and then it's, that's more like a term of the contract. All creation. Or all flesh shall never again. That's more like a term of the contract than it is a party. Well, you're, what word are you reading? Verse uh, 10. Oh, no, that's verse 11. Yeah, that's verse 11. The establishment covenant with you, semicolon, and all flesh shall never be cut off. That's a stipulation of the covenant. That's not a party. That was the next thing I was going to ask you. What is the main stipulation that God binds himself to? That's verse 11. And actually, what follows as well. Who wants to summarize what that main stipulation is? God is promising or contracting to never bring a mabul. Remember the specific word for flood. Stipulation is only from God's perspective and not from man's perspective because man doesn't, he doesn't say, I will do this only if you do this. He just says, I promise you this. And it says this is my covenant. Yes, right. It's a one-way covenant. It is a one-way covenant, exactly. And that was the next point I was going to talk about, is the nature of covenants. One of the characteristics of covenants, some of them are 
unilateral covenants, where one party basically stipulates that he's going to take responsibility and fulfill everything that is stipulated, and there are mutual or, what what is the other word, where both parties are bound. The Noahic covenant is an unconditional covenant. Unilateral. Mm-hmm. Bilateral. Bilateral and unilateral. The Noahic is unilateral. It is only God who is going to perform, and it doesn't matter what man does. Most covenants, and, and by the way, there are a lot of covenants in the Bible. There are covenants between individuals that are mentioned in the book of Genesis. Abraham and Abimelech enter into a covenant. Abraham and some others enter into covenants. There are covenants between nations. We call them treaties, but they're covenants. They're contracts. And now in this case, we have covenants initiated with the Noahic where even God himself enters into a covenant. So basically the word for covenant is berit. Berit. It's like a B. This is like an R. This is like an I. That's a T. They are legally binding contracts. Covenants. So when you think of a covenant, think of a legally binding document. It can be in the form of an agreement, usually between two parties, two families, two companies. It can be a pact. It can be a treaty between two nations. And in this case, it's between God and humanity, basically, or at least the family and the descendants, which would include all of humanity, and it includes creation. The main element of a barit is it specifies behavior to be complied with. Specifies what the parties agree to do under contract. And as Marcy pointed out, this is a one-sided covenant. It doesn't depend on Noah. Noah does not have any behavior that he has to comply with. We're going to see a different covenant later on where... It's more mutual. It's more agreed upon between the two parties. This is huge. This is important. What God is doing here is he is basically setting up new parameters for the entire universe on a physical basis. Because for him to be able to control whether there's another Mabul, another worldwide flood, he's got to control every electron in the universe. If you just project things out scientifically, he's got to keep all of the planets in their orbit, all of the asteroids from getting too close that would hinder what might happen if there was a hit by an asteroid. So are you saying that this is brand new? Didn't he already have that? He had it set up, but he is setting new parameters, is what I'm saying. I'm going to demonstrate this in a moment. I'm going to show this in more detail. Yeah, I'm going to go in that direction. Well, the point I'm making, if you think just astronomically, God can't allow the moon to go off its course by enough to bring tidal waves that will flood whole continents. So he has to control all of these things, all the material realm. The Noahic Covenant establishes that. And there's some other implications from other passages I'll show you as well. So the Noahic Covenant, let's take a look at it in summary. The occasion of it is we have a brand new beginning. So we are looking after the Genesis Flood of a totally new situation that is totally different from before the Genesis Flood. 
there is physical evidence that indicates, or at least intimate, that the pre-flood environment was different than the post-flood environment. The Noahic Covenant, with this little statement, God is specifying a new physical environment. It gives stability to science. In other words, it gives a basis for science to be able to do scientific work. Because of the Noahic Covenant, we can do science today. Make sense? Far-reaching here. You said, though, it establishes a new. Really, doesn't it just make Noah aware that he already established? No. This is this this is different. This is new. I, I'm going to point this out. I, yeah, hold on here. I'm going to give you more on this. Hold on. I'm going to give you more. Source of the Noahic Covenant, always God. You know, everything comes from him, but particularly Noahic Covenant, Elohim, in the text here. He institutes it. Now, I haven't answered why. Why did God enter into covenant? If you can just put yourself in Noah's shoes, you just saw the destruction of everything. You're coming off an ark, and you're like on the moon, or on Mars, or somewhere. This is a totally different planet. There's very little vegetation, for one. Every animal is gone. Is Every human is gone, except those that were on the ark. You are on a moonscape. You are trembling in your boots because if God did this once, he could do it again. So God is giving double assurance to Noah and the rest of his descendants to realize that God is establishing something here that is going to be long range. And I'm going to chart this on our world history timeline. I'll show it to you in a moment. So the source of this is God himself. The main content of the Noahic Covenant is no flood. No more Mabul, that is a worldwide cataclysmic flood. And that will have ramifications in other areas as well. But that's the main emphasis there. Number four, this is the design. This is what I just mentioned. The design of it is intended to give assurance. Noah, just coming off the ark now, can go out in confidence The God that destroyed everything is the God that I have put my faith in and I can I can trust him. And I don't have to worry about a flood anymore. I I have to worry about sin, but not a flood. So it gives him assurance. And what I've been saying all along, the effects of the Noahic Covenant has ramifications for all of the creation, all of the universe. And we didn't read the passage, but if you read on, God is going to stipulate to remind mankind... He's going to give a sign, and the sign is a rainbow. And again, this is something else our culture has perverted. The gay movement has taken the rainbow and utilizes it for its own usages. It was designed initially by God to remind mankind that he is in covenant. He's observing his covenant. So even though you will find rain, you will find storms, you may even find some things that are destructive in terms of storm, but they will never be destructive in terms of a universal scope. There will never be a worldwide flood. So after a rainstorm, you can be assured because of the rainbow, God is not bringing a worldwide flood. So those are the main elements of the Noahic Covenant and the characteristics of it, it is decreed by God. God has decreed it and entered into covenant to give man the assurance that he's going to follow through. 
We've mentioned it's unconditional. Only God is bound by it. Doesn't matter how man responds. Thirdly, it is universal. It's going to affect all of the creation. Not just spiritual things, not just mankind. Fourthly, it's ultimately gracious. God does not have to do this. It's gracious. Fifthly, physical. Deals with the physical realm. Deals with the creation. Physical realm. Now we can add to our foundation to science. Remember we started talking about the foundation of science. Let me reintroduce it here. Secular view, unchanging laws of nature, unchanging. In other words, they exist. And if they acknowledge a God, God exists here. God can't change the laws of nature because they're separate from God. Remember that idea? So we have truth. If you want to find truth, go do science and look at these laws or the phenomena of science, come up with these laws of science. God is down here somewhere lower, uncapitalized, religion. All of this is opinion. That's not going to help you to get truth, according to the secularist. That's a common view today. Don't trust your Bible. That's religion. If you want ethics, if you want uh, opinion, go to the Bible. But if you want truth, if you want science, then you have to look at created realm. That's secular view. Real quickly, we said only God is eternal. I gave you all this. Only God is infinite. Creation is not infinite. It's limited in all ways. Only God is eternal. Creation is created, has beginning. It's going to be transformed. Only God is truth. Creation reflects truth. Only God is self-existent. The creation is dependent and upheld. We'll add that later. Only God is unchanging. We call that immutable. Constants are not immutable. Constants are only temporary, as God sees fit. Now, he's entering into covenant here to stabilize these constants, but they're not going to be eternal. He's going to change these constants in the future. I'll show you that. The Bible predicts. And they're only constant as he desires. He can intervene and change a very stable molecule, H2O, and go against all the known so-called laws of nature, and just by speaking, he can turn H2O into a very complex carbon-based molecule we call wine. He can do that. So as he desires. So whatever constants maintain H2O as H2O, he can just speak it into something else. So he is the only one that is immutable. He is sovereign. I'm going to show you some more of that. And the creation is a servant to the creator. That's the biblical worldview. This is our God. This is the biblical perspective on the natural realm that goes against current thinking. So we have a creator that is sovereign Lord. We have a creation that is temporarily constant and a a dependent creation. And he sovereignly uses, orchestrates, changes, affects that creation. This is different from what you will read in any science text. It's a biblical view of science. So we looked at science begins with God as God is creator, God's creation, not evolution. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation from Genesis 1.1 is finite and temporal, has a beginning. And from the rest of scripture, we're going to see it's going to even have an end. It's not eternal. 
We saw that the main purpose of creation reveals God, so it's not purposeless. This is review. This is all, we should have this back when we talk about creation. And there's the Romans 1, 19 and 20 verse, just to remind you about the creation, that he uses it to reveal himself, so that what is evident about God is within them. God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That's the creation. So that they are without an apologetic. It's a literal translation there. Apologia in that context. Without an apologia, without a apologetic. Or translated without excuse. So, number four, science after the original creation is very good. No entropy. Turn to 2 Peter 3. This is a very insightful passage. 2 Peter 3. Kenzie, do you want to start reading for us? 3, 3. Knowing this first of all, that scoffers may come in the last days with scoffing, following their own simple desires. Okay, stop there. The context, he's dealing with the second coming of Christ and the culture of the first century. You know, where's the first... You know, this Christ going to come. I mean, what's the deal here? We don't believe it. They're mocking. They're mockers. And they follow after their own desires. And what do they say? Read verse 4, Mackenzie. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the body shall escape, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. That could have been written in the 21st century. That's what we describe as uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism is the concept that everything is always the same. In other words, if you can look at things today, that's how they've been in all time. Uniformitarianism also is that concept that constants don't change. In other words, they're fixed. But neither do other things change. So if you can evaluate processes today, just project them back in time, and you can figure out what happened in past time. So they're saying there's no evidence other than things just keep going as they always have. So what evidence do you have that Jesus is going to return? Because if Jesus returns in the way that you describe it, everything's going to be different. Everything's going to be transformed. Well, what does Peter say next? Somebody, you want to, Mars, read uh, verse 5? For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Okay, stop there. What he's saying here, they are overlooking that there have been events in history that are radical. In other words, he's refuting the concept of uniformitarianism. They're wrong when they think everything has always been the same. Everything has not always been the same. And the evidence that he uses, the first thing that it gets to is what? What's the first thing there? Anyone? What did Marcy read? Creation. He's talking about Genesis 1. Keep reading, Mars. Verse 6. 